This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. Welcome back to another episode of the Secret Library Podcast. This week, my guest is Megan Dowell, who is a librarian at Beloit, which is a small liberal arts college in southern Wisconsin. And I wanted to have Megan on because we were chatting a little while ago, and she was talking about library science and the way that the books that we're able to access or the information that we're able to access is something that shapes the way we view ourselves. And we'll get into more of what that means as we talk, but I, I just sort of lit up. And as you all will remember, when we had Ruth Bernstein on talking about the future of libraries, I felt like this was an excellent continuation of that conversation. So thank you so much for being with us, Megan. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we talk a lot about books here. And the part about books that that I think is so important is how they get out into the world and how people find them. And it's one thing to write a book, but it's also, you know, how is your book going to find people and how people, how are people going to find your book? And one of the major ways that people do so is through libraries and the way that libraries are organized and the way that we interact with them really informs what we read and then how we think. So if you can say a little bit about what you're seeing as kind of changes that are happening in the way libraries are working these days and how you think that's impacting people? I know that's a really small question to start out with. (laughs) Super small. Let me see if I can tackle it. I should preface all of this with saying that I am an academic librarian. So I, I use public libraries, but I do not work in them. And public libraries and academic libraries tend to operate a little bit differently on how we collect and what type of, what type of book we tend to collect. So I will, I will be speaking to the academic side of it. Which is awesome. Okay. Just because <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what yeah. public librarians do. We collect based on our curriculum that we're teaching and then also what students are interested in. So, um, for instance, this semester we have a lot of students interested in the hashtag syllabus movement, which if you don't know, it I, is... I um, want to hear more immediately. <laughs> it's a way of crowdsourcing um readings around events. And this is really um, kind of seated in black feminist scholarship, where, you know, one of the first ones that came out was um, hashtag Ferguson or Ferguson syllabus, excuse me. Um, There's a Baltimore syllabus, there's a lemonade syllabus, there's a formation syllabus, I believe a, a Colin Kaepernick, I'm sorry, I should know how to say his name. There's a syllabus being formed right now. And you can find them on ha- uh, Twitter because mm-hmm. that's where hashtags live or Facebook, but I find most of them on Twitter. So we sort of look at what students want and start buying in that area. And then also, you know, 
books that they need to be successful during their academic career. Absolutely. So now I'm obsessed with the hashtag syllabus thing. So you'll have to forgive <laughs> me for that. So if somebody wanted to look for hashtag syllabus, if they wanted to dive into a subject, so something they could do, I try to break this down into like idiot level because I'm very new at this concept. You would go on Twitter and then just search hashtag syllabus and do people tag their hashtag syllabus term and then they also hashtag it hashtag syllabus as well so that you can find them in that category or are they sneakier than that? Sometimes sometimes it's all it's like hashtag syllabus syllabus hashtag lemonade syllabus. Right. Um, my suggestion would just to be to Google hashtag syllabus. And you're going to find a lot of either publications. I think The Atlantic wrote one. I feel like HuffPo did too. Or you're going to find library research guides uh, that have been collecting these so that they are easier to find. Um, and then once you find that hashtag, so let's say you're using the lemonade syllabus, you would just dump, copy and paste that into Twitter and you would find all of the readings. With the Lemonade Syllabus, she has put it into um, a type of ebook that's available online. So it's not just now living in Twitter, but still people are contributing to it, right? So, you know, Lemonade came out, and I'm referring to Beyonce's newest yes. piece of work. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. We'll link to we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll, okay. I'm sure we'll have tons of links in this in this episode. So not to worry. I just assume that everyone knows what Beyonce is doing. That's my my apologies. Uh, no, don't don't apologize. I think uh, I think there's many much of the world feels that way, and it's totally worth watching. Good. So if you haven't watched Lemonade, you should. A thousand percent, yes. <laughs> um, so right, so she made this ebook that's available online, so that and so that educators can find this. It's an um, an open educational resource or OER uh, to teach from it. So, you know, depend, you could tailor it based on the age level that you're teaching to, but it's accessible, um, which is what the idea around this hashtag syllabus is, is that it's available to whoever, regardless of access to scholarly publications. That's so amazing. I, I'm so excited. I like want to jump around, but it's going to make my floor squeak and make bad sound on the show. <laughs> it's amazing that you can build something like that, that people can interact with? And are they listing books or is it mostly articles or just everything on everything, on everything, film, books, articles. Um, and when I speak, say articles, I mean, both freely accessible and then also ones that are being published um, academically and through academic journals that you might need institutional access or public library access to, to get at. But for the most part, they're going to be freely available. That is so very cool. I really love the idea of kind of DIYing degree programs because I'm the kind of person who, if it was financially viable, I would just go to school for the rest of my life. I would love to be a professional student. Sadly, that doesn't seem to be available um, at this point in my life. I have enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm tempted to go PhD, but I just, I can't really justify it at this moment. But I love the idea of the fact that you don't necessarily need to go for a degree to, to be informed and to engage with information that is valid and something like a hashtag syllabus. And I think academia in many ways interacting with that allows people to be more engaged in study and curiosity and engaging in topics. And does that seem to be something that's a trend where it's not just ivory tower study, but sort of engaging with the real world more? The trend is absolutely toward breaking down the ivory tower, I think. Maybe breakdown feels a bit harsh, but 
I still love the ivory tower. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I mean, yes, but to step outside of it, to see other ways that there isn't only one way that we can educate ourselves, that there are many ways to educate ourselves. Um, and it sort of depends on the personal interest. You know, you saying that you'd like to be a professional student, um, as would I, um, <laughs> though I feel like I'm sort of cheating the system a little bit because I feel like my job allows for that. I get to research whatever the students are getting to research because they come to me for que with questions. And so I'm constantly learning something new about things that I never even would have considered reading more about. And I do so because they come to me with questions. So it's, I don't end up with all the degrees, but I end up with all of the very trivial bits of knowledge that I <laughs> gain from answering reference questions. I wonder if academic librarians or librarians in general are the best possible candidates for like Jeopardy. <laughs> I love that you ask that. Every time there's a librarian on Jeopardy, I'm just like, oh, she knows how to find the information. And I it, not just like know it off the top of her head. So maybe she's a Jeopardy trainer. <laughs> maybe she's a Jeopardy trainer. You like prep the hashtag Jeopardy syllabus. Oh, yes. They actually just opened up practice tests and I, I've been trying to take them. And they're very difficult. Are they really? I'm assuming they are because it's like you watch the show and if you get a few right, you think, oh, I could totally do that. But then the idea of being under pressure and having cameras on you and having to hit the button and all, I'm just like, I would crack. I would not be able to handle it. Well, never remembering to say what is. Oh, yeah. I took one of the practice tests and I was, you only get a certain amount of time. And so I'm typing all of these answers furiously in. And then I get to the end and I essentially got all of them wrong because I did not type what is. <laughs> oh, God, the question format. That is rough. Right. That's how you would answer those. So thankfully, you can take it many times. Oh, good. That's amazing. I would love to see you on Jeopardy. When you get on Jeopardy, <laughs> you'll have to let us know and we will tell everyone that you're going to be on. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> So how did you come to specialize in um, being, an, you know, an academic librarian? Like, how did you get to this role, which seems like the perfect job? I sort of lucked into it. So my, I started off right out of high school, went um, to college and very quickly determined it was not for me and spent about five or so years working and figuring out what it was I was meant to do. And finally, I went back to school and I was I was going to a community college and the library was needing student workers. And so I started working there. I was like, oh, the libraries are neat. I like them. It's quiet. It's fine. And I worked with two really amazing librarians there um, at this community college who sort of mentored me Apparently, they saw something in me that I did not and just sort of helped me get to this point where they were like, okay, you're going to library school. This is what you need to do. This is, and so they gave me different tasks within the library. I was helping with some of the instruction. They let me answer some reference questions. Basically, it was like the first one's free, right? Like, they were just getting me hooked on, on what I was going to do. Um, so I finished my undergrad and uh, because I... They were like, it doesn't matter what you do for your undergrad. You just need an undergrad so you can go to grad school to be a librarian. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I studied political economy because I thought it was neat. Um, I still think it's neat. It was a fun way to spend a few years. Uh, and then I went to library school. And because I had started out in that academic setting, I think it just felt natural to me to stay in it. Um, I worked for one special library once and 
it was just too small, I think. Um, it was, yeah. And so I enjoyed the student interaction, I think. I, I still, that's my favorite part of the job, actually, is, you know, working with students on what they are into. And they're into so much. And they're, they're, like, there's cool topics out there that these kids and uh, you are know, 12 years younger than I am, 14 years younger than I am. But, like, oh, they're even younger than me. Don't worry. They're so bright and interested that it's just you feed off of it um and of course like there are students that are just like oh I would really like to get on this paper so I need to know x y and z um and then you have students that for three or four semesters are working on the same research and you get to watch that evolution um from where they started to where they end up and it's just really cool that's amazing I think it's because then you're learning along with them. And there's a lot of other things that I do that are behind the scenes that are just not as interesting. It's the student interaction, faculty interaction, classrooms. It's where it's at for me. <laughs> and then just getting to talk about this information and having them ask these questions and, you know, realizing, it, well, watching them realize they know what they're doing, but they, th and then utilizing those skills in a different way. And what I mean by that, I suppose, is, you know, I'll, I'll walk into a classroom and I'm like, okay, where do you find your information? Where do you go? You start, what are you doing? And it's crickets because no one wants to tell the librarian they go to Google um, or to Wikipedia, heaven forbid. Um, when, like, I use Google and Wikipedia all the time when I need to know something, like, that's where you get a good, fast answer. <laughs> um, it's not an answer you might cite in your college research paper, but it tells you something. I think it's reassuring to hear that librarians use Wikipedia and Google and that it's not like a guilty secret people have to have. No, not at all. There are many things like, you know, it's like, I don't know, what did I look up earlier? I needed to know who was speaking on a TED talk and like the fastest way to figure that out is Google. Yeah, there's no reason to avoid tools. Um, I think in some ways we have this romantic notion of the library, particularly of an academic library that, you know, it's almost like Dickens or something with a lot of tweed and you're sort of in a room with a wooden <laughs> chair and it's all very, you know, romantic and, and everybody's writing with a quill. And But there's so much that's happening in library science that I would think academics are at the forefront of because you're so close to other departments figuring this out that are where it's changing so much. Absolutely. Um, and this differs based on institution, especially on size of institution. But there's a lot of partnership going on just to sort of be more interdisciplinary, I suppose. Like the library sits at the hub of, of any campus. And so they're inherently just interdisciplinary. But those one-on-one -on -one relationships with different partners enhance that greatly. But you're right, the way like the way access that information is different. You know, thinking back even to the early 90s, how you utilize the library catalog and what that looked like, it was likely a large wooden cabinet with drawers and cards inside of it. And now it's a database that's searchable on any device. <laughs> um, so that, it, and that's only what, sort of or let's say it's, oh heavens, my math is awful, like 25 years ago, mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Um, that's a short amount of time, really. 
And then what's being published electronically? Now we have access to hundreds and of thousands of ebooks that our buildings couldn't physically hold. Um, large institutions have off-campus storage that because their collections are large and they're you know R1 schools and they just can't hold all of the books. And now that you can have them electronically, your collections can be very very large if you'd like them to be, which is nice. And, and good for just accessibility reasons. So how do you decide what you're going to add to your collection when there is such a limitation on space? And deciding whether it's going to be electronic or it's going to be physical, like how do you deal with that? That sounds like a real conundrum. It depends on how it is offered. Typically, we collect and print, um, and then ebooks come in collections. So unless we're purchasing specifically for reasons, for accessibility reasons, um, because screen readers can read screens, um, but for vision needs, a print book is much more difficult to reprint in Braille or have printed at all in Braille because they're not all books are printed that way. So it really just depends on what the ultimate use is. But the majority of the collection for most collections, I would say, for any library, would be print. And I'm sure you've heard of, and the listeners have heard of, these bookless libraries that are popping up in places um, where all of their materials are electronic. I would have to do a Google search myself to know where those are right now. But there are a few, like a handful, um, in the United States that are libraries without books, and they just have hundreds of computers or access points um, and very good Wi-Fi <laughs> in which to access these things, right? Because that's the other part. If you're going to get rid of your collections and have everything electronic, you need to have the bandwidth to make sure that that is possible for more than 10 users. And then how how is the adjustment process for a librarian of working in a library where there are no books? Like how how is that mentally to make that shift? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I think it probably depends on the person. I still really like my print books. I will read electronically if I need to, but I, I prefer print. And I really, that's such a personal preference. And there are great, great debates <laughs> on this all the time, especially when it comes down to what device to read electronically on. Oh, heavens, that gets heated quickly. Well, what, what, are, the, what are the sides? I want to know the inside library hot debates on uh Oh, well, this, is just isn't, this just isn't librarian-based. Like, um, I have friends that swear by the, the, the Kindle paper one that apparently doesn't have any glare and looks like a piece of paper versus like um i have other people that will only read phones and that screen is so small <laughs> so it's just like it's all over the place but there's definitely preferences yeah i can't imagine only reading on my phone I, yeah i don't know i i am ter- i have so many books um oh, and yeah, i even I worked in a building where i could borrow them and i've been getting better about that but i still often buy them which it's a hazard, I suppose. <laughs> no, I, I'm considering offering a, a companion show called Book Hoarders Anonymous or something where we can all come home <laughs> and confess like, well, I bought 12 books in the last month and I really didn't need to. And I'm afraid I'm going to be shut in my house and I won't be able to move. And I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I still keep buying books. Well, right now, it's the paralysis of looking at my unread book stack. 
oh, and it God. just keeps getting bigger. But I'm just like, when am I ever going to have the time to read all of these books? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. I mean, I'm glad it's not just me. I find that very reassuring. But I have this <laughs> fantasy of renting like a small castle in Ireland and taking a steamer trunk full of books for like six months and curling up and reading all of them. But I don't think six months would be long enough anymore. Maybe not. You just have to make sure it doesn't have Wi-Fi. Because and that no is Wi-Fi. The, the great distractor. Yeah, Wi-Fi is kind of the devil's playground. <laughs> At least yes, in terms yes. of concentration and um, being able to focus. But um, one thing we talked about briefly when we first when we were first talking about this that I was totally struck by mm-hmm. was a little bit related to it was a related to information access. I think that you were looking at, and it was sort of like if you're someone typing in something on the internet and something comes up. I think the example you used maybe was like a person of color searching for the word pretty. Was this right? And then it shows a bunch of white girls. And what does that do to your headspace? Yes. So this this scenario comes out of um, Sophia Noble's research. Um, she's a she's a researcher and, and faculty member at UCLA. And it was a, a description that she was giving us at a conference. I, I saw her last spring at the LibTech conference. Which sounds awesome. I might have to crash that. Do you have to be a librarian to go? You do not have to be a librarian yes. to go. Yes. It is in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They're so close. Yeah. I feel like, like, well, it's at McAllister. So that's St. Paul, but I stayed in Minneapolis. It doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so I got to see her speak there, and that was one of the d- examples that she gave. So, you know, you, you and this was a few years ago, and I think she started her research. Um, but she was typing beautiful into Google. And instead of seeing what you might traditionally think is beautiful, sunsets, beaches, flowers, um, it was scantily clad white women. Yikes. And, uh, you know, what, what that says to people, um, and depending upon the person that's sitting behind that computer, right, it's it says a, a different thing, you know. If it is this young woman of color, she's a, immediately excluded by just the algorithm that's being used, and because of her location and her as being uh, Dr. Noble, she's been working very closely with Google and and sort of researching those algorithms a bit more to make them more equitable and and less gross. <laughs> <laughs> the word that I want to use. It's just, I think it's reasonable. Gross. Well, it brings up this chicken or the egg phenomenon. And the thing I can think about, although I mean, anyone who uses Google and searches for information is going to have this happen. But I think about other places where I search for things to consume, ostensibly to learn or to expand my mind or just to be entertained. And I think about Netflix as one example, where, you know, I put in movies that I want to watch and I either watch them or add them to my queue. And if I watch them, I rate them, you know, and say, I really liked this movie. And then it goes on to suggest things. I mean, everybody who's listening will know this. I don't need to explain this. I sound like a mansplainer. Um, (laughs) But I think of that as one way where I wonder on the one hand, maybe it's more likely to suggest something I would like, but I'm also more likely to miss something that I might like because it's excluding it because it thinks I wouldn't like it. And we're all real people. So I wonder, like, in terms of the Google algorithm, maybe a bunch of people decided these women were pretty, but they might also think that other 
things like beaches and nature and mountains and all kinds of other stuff is beautiful as well. So how do we influence the algorithm? And even though the, the algorithm is influencing us and we influence the algorithm, but how do we engineer the algorithm, you know, the other way? A thousand. Yes. So th- this is the concept of filter bubbles and it's been around for a few years, but it's, it's the bubble that you create around yourself based on what you read, what you like, the sites that you visit. Um, there's a fantastic Ted talk about this by Eli Pariser. Okay. We'll link, we'll link to it in this site. I'll find it. Perfect. And it just gives a nice little synopsis of what these are, but you're absolutely right. So you spend time on Netflix and you're voting on things or, or rating things and you are only, you are missing movies and TV shows because you have unknowingly or, well, actually willingly in that case, played into um, creating an algorithm that suits you. And I think most of us have spent too much time on Netflix trying to find something you want to watch, but nothing sounds quite right. Um, and you've sort of done it to yourself um, in ways that are a little less self-fulfilled would be Google or um, well, Twitter's doing it as well. And Facebook. So the things that you like, if you've starred a tweet, if you're following certain people, if you've retweeted something, what articles you are reading. A really funny example is that I use the Yahoo news app to keep up on my celebrity gossip. It's where I like to use, it's that news app. I use Google News for other stuff, but Yahoo News, that's that's my jam for celebrities. And so my phone was upstairs and I went to go grab my partner's phone uh, because I was bored and I wanted to, to know what was going on with the Kardashians or something ridiculous. And his Yahoo News app is entirely different. It was very political. It was current events um, that were not celebrity related. And it just reminded me, it kind of gave me that smack in the face that I needed. I was like, I have curated this app, this news app that in theory should give me better news, better quotes there. And all it takes is, you know, a few months of using it. And, and it's exactly what I've only clicked on, whereas somebody else's is entirely different. And so in this TED talk, um, he's, he's talking about, I believe it's about Facebook and the political views popping up and down. So um, if you're following a lot of conservative people, you're going to start seeing more conservative news feeds um, and your liberal f- friends will just get buried in the, the fold, essentially, or, and vice versa, um, because it's what you interact with. So did you leave a comment? Did you give it a thumbs up? And then those opinions that you aren't interacting with just sort of go by the wayside, which is how we start to live within this bubble. You know, our, our network is very small and it takes a lot of effort to pull out of that network to find other information. But your, you know, your laptop, your internet browser, like your, yeah, your browser does it for you too. Um, I'm a Chrome browser user. And, As am I. <laughs> you know, I am shopping for boots on a website, and then all of a sudden that ad is on every other web like tab that I'm using. So it's following where you go and what you do. You'll start noticing your autofills in Google are relevant to what you've been reading the last week. That's crazy. And it, it is like 
you know, it gives you those auto fills that are sometimes hilarious and sometimes terrifying. Um, and then sometimes you're like, is my phone listening to me? How did it know that that is what I was going to type in? I don't, I haven't looked to see if our phones are listening to us yet. I don't think I want to know the answer to yeah, that I question. Have a, I have friends who work in, in tech and kind of surveillance. So I'm like both <laughs> interested and horrified about the possibility of asking them this. Exactly. It could get to a place that you just don't want to know. But if you find out the answer, please tell okay, me. Okay, <laughs> I will definitely keep you posted. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me because on the one hand, this feels like, oh no, my world's getting smaller. And of course, we don't want that. And at the same time, right now, I, and I'm sure you're as aware of this as anybody could be, there's more content than there ever has been in the past. So how does one deal with you know, being an informed reader in an, in an era where there's more information than you can ever have, but you don't want to keep reading the same thing over and over. I like news aggregators or like newsletter aggregators for this. Um, and I subscribe to multiple of them and they typically have different political points of view. So what's an example of one of those? So, um, let's see the week. I think I've seen that. I used to get the physical copy of that. Okay. So there's an email every morning that I get that's the top 10 news stories from the day before. And, you know, half of them I would have picked up on via some other form of, of media. Um, and the other half, I'm like, oh, I should read this. Um, next draft. And then several different podcasts. So I really enjoy Call Your Girlfriend. Oh, I don't know this one. This is amazing. Uh, it is a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. It's Anne Friedman and Aminat Tuso. And they tackle everything from feminism to this week in menstruation to Ivanka's dad, which is how they refer to Trump. So, <laughs> and then I also like to look and see what the Drudge Report is publishing. It's good to, to, be, to be looking everywhere. So those are probably some of the, the biggest ways that I consume different bits of information. They are, I think, probably more left-leaning but. I think that's probably reflective of the, the people listening. <laughs> I don't want to speak for everyone, but I do have that impression. That's how I try to diversify. But I also know that like it's almost impossible to break out of your bubble. I know. And I think I, I, I'm curious also, like in a world, and I sound like a trailer, but I do live in Los Angeles, so I can't help but be informed by that. Like in a world where there are so many books out there, how do you as a librarian decide what you want to read? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> so many different ways. You know, I find a lot of books to read on Tumblr. There's a fairly large librarian presence on Tumblr. Um, hashtag Tumblrians. And so I, I, there's several lists there that I follow. And then just other hashtags I'll stumble across. But there's a lot of good book reviews or just people talking about them casually on Tumblr. I love Tumblr is an option because I'm not like a huge Tumblr user. I would say my primary is Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a huge book presence there, but it's more like, look at my beautiful book with this cup of coffee and like my cat draped over it, which I am also, <laughs> you know, likely to take pictures of. But I think Tumblr is great in that it's an easy way to just say this book was good, but it's not, you know, you don't have to write a whole thing. Completely. Yes. And that's exactly what's happening. Let's see. 
the typical places where you find book reviews, the New Yorker, the New York Times, the Women's Review of Books, Friends are always good. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, where else do I find them? I suppose podcasts a lot. Or um, Twitter's good, too, depending upon who you're following. So um, NPR has a Twitter. I think it's NPR Books. I know they absolutely have a Tumblr, and I follow them there. But I feel like they probably have a Twitter as well. We'll find them. You've create you've uh, you've uh, woken my detective tendencies. There's just this new website that I recently found out about that is essentially an aggregator of book reviews, and Ooh. they give the books grades. And of course, it is completely gone from my memory. But I emailed it to my mother. <laughs> Excellent. I know that's the thing. I'm. I'm always talking to family members. Like I have a few family members where we like the same kinds of books and we're constantly sharing with each other. Oh, you've got to read this. And in a way, I guess that's another bubble. It's like I talk to the same group of people and we all know that we like <laughs> yeah. the same kind of books. And we're like, oh, you got to read this. This is another one that's in that vein. But yeah, I have to think about how can I break this bubble and learn about more things that are out there. So it is Literary Hub has a website called Bookmarks. Ooh, Nice. And they give letter grades based on, an, an, I think the, the book has to re- be reviewed at least five times. And then you can filter by genre, um, author, length, language, uh, uh, several different ways to filter. Um, so to hopefully um, maybe ho- expand what you're reading. That's great. I love the idea of just finding something that you didn't expect. And this is why I live in fear about, I'm not as afraid any anymore because I honestly think that Instagram is saving physical books in a way because people I find myself <laughs> and other people saying well I gotta get a picture of it so I better get the physical book um and I love stores like I've been in Powell's several times recently oh, as yeah. like so enormous that of course I'm gonna find things I didn't expect just because of the sheer volume of being in there I think even the bookstores that we pick it's like what they tend to get it's all based on what they think people will buy so I guess sometimes I have to learn to let it go. Like, well, maybe the reason they didn't choose them is because I might not like it or it might not be of use to me. But I think my my silly existential crisis when I was like eight years old was I realized, oh my God, I'm going to die someday and there'll be books I haven't read. And this was (gasps) deeply distressing to me. (laughs) I like the dollar bins at bookstores like that um, because you're, you're taking a chance on it, right? Like they've ordered it. Somehow it's gotten discounted to the dollar bins. I lived in New York City for a time and Strand always had the carts on the sidewalk. They were like a dollar and three dollars. And I would just grab some off of there. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to read it. It's either going to be great or it's not. But I'm out a dollar, so it's okay. Yeah, you don't have to be so invested. Exactly. And then and then there's, you know, library books and all this ways, to, you know, to find them. And libraries, especially like, so I'm talking about going into my public library. The displays are so good. And they'll have, you know, reading groups and themes. And it's it's a nice way to get exposed to something that... I wouldn't necessarily read because I'm just like, oh, this theme sounds neat. What What's going on here? And they do, yeah, public librarians just in general do an amazing job with programming, especially for young adults. Um, I'm always impressed. And, and I, I wish that I would have paid more attention as a young adult to what was happening in my library because I probably would have read even more. But it's really, really fun to watch and see what cool stuff they're doing. Absolutely. So what are you reading now? Oh, dear. Um, I'm sure it's a reading... long list. <laughs> What is on my 
book stands. Is it The Lover's Discourse or A Lover's Discourse? It's Bart. I read The Marriage Plot last summer. Oh, you're generous, yeah. And there's several different philosophers in that book that they talk about, and Bart is one of them. I think it's Bart, Barthes. B-A-R-T-E-S. Yeah, I think it's Bart. Okay. At least we're both wrong if we're wrong. Super. Thank you. Um, a Lover's Discourse is one of them. I'm also reading The Guide to Misinformation, which is non a nonfiction book about how statistics are misrepresented. It's sort of in the vein of lies, damn lies and statistics. Or, oh, yeah. Uh, I've butchered that title as well. No, I think you're right, actually. It sounds very, I think I know. There's lies, damn lies and statistics. Isn't yes. That, isn't that Twain? Maybe I'm totally wrong. That might be a little, it might be a little more recent than Twain. It just sounds legit like Twain. Oh, no, no, no. It is more recent than and that author I'm awful with author names it's actually kind of a a problem in my line of work uh- <laughs> but at least you can look them up I mean I used to work I worked in book soup in West Hollywood and I had a podcast which uh, my co-host was on the show recently and he and I had an entire podcast where we talk about books in the show and we almost never remember the name of the book. And so we'd be like, you know, that one it's up in the front. It's right near the big penis book. It was always in <laughs> reference to where it was based on that, um, that giant coffee table, the big penis book. So we still had a decent following, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Wonderful. As long as we have the title, we can find it and put it in the show notes. So you're it- totally safe. You know, and at least like, it, yeah, I'm not talking about like the blue book or the red book, which is the ongoing librarian joke um, from probably forever ago. But, you know, a patron walks up and they're like, oh, I need this blue book. And just, you have yeah, I remember it was blue. No, I totally know that one because we got that in the bookstore, too. And oh, actually, sure. there's yeah. a bookstore in Pasadena called Romans. And I think I feel like I'm remembering this correctly, but I remember coming into the store once and there was a big display and it was all blue books. And they were like. In case you need one, you remember one that was blue. Here, try one of these. It was great. We like to poke fun at the the fun questions. <laughs> well, my very favorite question I actually ever I ever got was um, I was working at Book Soup and I was in the store and somebody came in because there were a bunch of hotels on Sunset Boulevard near where the bookstore is, and so she came in basically in a towel, like with a bathing suit on, you know, kind of dripping. And she came in and she walked up to me. I guess she could tell I worked there because I was like organizing or something. And she said, hey, do y'all have any paperback books? And I was standing <laughs> in, in the center of like a floor to ceiling, rolly laddered, you know, bookstore. And I didn't know what to say. I just said, what kind? Because I was like, there's 50 of them that I could touch right this second. And I think she meant trade paperback as I reflect back on it. But I was like, it's not like everything you can see right now is hardback. It was it was such a shocking question. I didn't know how to engage with it. No, that's pretty common. Another thing that I'm curious about, and maybe you can speak to, but I doubt this is happening so much in academia because students are prescribed books, you know, and they have to read them for class. But what do you think is behind? There's a statistic I've read. It was like most people in the U.S. have read fewer than 10 books in the past year. And I don't understand how that's possible because that sounds like being in jail to me. Do you think that's true? Probably. Um, yes. I think a lot of time, and maybe that statistic would be print book, right? That um, could be. Yeah, that's a really interesting. Is it true? Maybe they're all reading articles. Well, and that's the thing is like, so there are, there is a lot of research right now about talking about the length that we want to read. And generally, that is an article 
that is where our attention span has has brought us is to this article length or they just want to know maybe enough of the information to talk about it versus to maybe read critically or to read with any depth I, I don't know I really hope that's not true but then I'm trying to think about how many books I read in the last year like truly front to back read instead of like I read six chapters out of it because I needed to know certain bits of information um I think it's around 15 maybe of like fun stuff that I wanted to read versus like stuff that I needed to read. Well, I think reading six chapters is, is fairly legit. That's like <laughs> picking up a book and getting into it. It's And maybe that's what, maybe that's where the statistic is coming from is that people don't finish books or they have trouble or they're reading articles or they're reading stuff. I think to me, I just have this fear of like, oh my God, is everyone okay? Like, are you happy? <laughs> Um, if you're not reading more than 10 books a year, that's like, I mean, I guess that's one a month and maybe people take a couple months and they read something and it's not a big deal. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not as dire as I think. And maybe I'm just projecting my life on other people, which I'm sure everyone does. <laughs> there's, there's also this, um, I feel like a little bit of a taboo that you have to finish a book if you pick it up. And I'm very much in the camp of if you aren't connecting with the book, I give you the permission to put it down and to not go back to it and to choose something else that you are going to connect with. I totally agree. I think that there are too many books in the world to, there, there's there got to be something else that you're going to love. So if you're not loving it, it's kind of the, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no kind of situation. Exactly. And to keep, give yourself that permission to move on. It's okay. How long do you go into a book before you decide it's not for you? Ooh, probably about 50 pages. I think that sounds reasonable. That feels about right. I've, I've made it about halfway through and I'm just like, you know what? No, I'm doing this to myself. I'm just making myself finish this and I don't need to. So I'll skip to like the last like three pages and just figure out where it ended up. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I gotta know, but I'm not gonna do every step on the way to get there. It's like that show that you're binge watching on Netflix and you just end up reading the synopsis on Wikipedia. <laughs> oh God, that's, that's scandalous. I know. But I just couldn't anymore. So I feel a little bit like um, I'm the opposite where I'm like really weird and I don't want anyone to talk about the show near me because I don't want the spoiler. I get really upset if something gets spoiled, even though I'm the kind of person here I'm saying it again. I have I seem to have a habit of watching shows like seven years after they come out. And so obviously everybody's already seen it. So I try to like get past the first wave when everyone's talking about it because I'm worried about the spoilers and mm -hmm. then have forgotten it and then watch it. I'm doing that right now, actually, with Mad Men. Uh, I never watched it when it was out originally. It's been out. I somehow missed all of the spoilers. Good um, for you. I don't know how. I, I honestly don't. So um, it, now everything's a surprise, and it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I haven't watched Mad Men either, so maybe maybe it's safe now, based on your saying that. I feel like it might be safe. I had a little trouble getting into it, but um, I really love the clothes. I had... I had a very hard time getting into it. So I, I tried to watch it when it first came out. I made it the first two episodes in and my blood would boil. Yeah, um, exactly. The, the misogyny was just too much for me. Um, and so somebody told me that it gets better. They're like, the women get like, they start being treated better. And I was like, oh, you better be right. <laughs> so I'm finally giving it another go. Yeah, I, I felt like it was like, infidelity on ice was what I was calling Mad Men to myself. Oh, yes, that too. Yeah. <laughs>
Ugh. But the clothes, you know, the clothes. It's beautiful. It does make you want to drink a lot of bourbon, though. Um, so that's problematic. But <laughs> but bourbon can be good with books. That's Bourbon is delightful with books. It is. Actually, that was one of the most popular pictures I ever posted on Instagram was like my hand from above sitting on a sitting on a book and it was on St. Patrick's Day. It was like a stack of books with my hand on it. With some, I was like, here's how I'm celebrating. Everyone was like, yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's what people need to do who are not reading more than 10 books. They just need to sit down with, you know, an enjoyable beverage, whether that's tea or something else, and just turn off the Wi-Fi. Has somebody started pairing books with, with drinks? I don't I know, but I think it's worth a shot. Time. I feel like somebody needs to tackle that. If you come up with some options, I'll put them in the show notes. Oh, heavens. That would be... Okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah. I think a librarian doing that would be added added weight behind these selections. Potentially, yeah. First of all, figure out if somebody's done it before. And if that's the case, we will link you directly to that source instead of waiting for me to figure it out. I still want to know what your favorite one is, so I will be asking about that. Drink pairing or just book in general? Book and book and drink pairing. You don't have to say it now. Just, no good. just ponder it and then let me know. And then everyone listening can look at the show notes and see what she came up with. I'll come yeah. up with one too. We'll have both of them. Perfect. I like I that. I love it. <laughs> well, this has been so awesome having you on and talking about all of these topics. I'm going to go obsess about hashtag curriculums. And, Please do. Um, or hashtag syllabus. Hashtag syllabus, yeah. Hashtag syllabus. I'm going to go dig into that, which is super exciting. And I hope that the Google algorithm continues to evolve to suit, you know, more inclusive, inclusive searching and all of that. And, and that, you know, we, we find ways to make that work better. I hope so, too. I, there are a lot of scholars working very hard on that and it will make continued improvement. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Megan. It's thank been you. so much fun having you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring this show. Remember, if you use the code SECRET00 with SECRET all caps, you can get 10% off your subscription at musemonthly.com. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.